Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. All right, so I'm really excited to uh, welcome to the show, Ron Shigeta. Uh, Ron is, um, he's living out in California in the, the Silicon Valley area. I mean, he's, he's, this is the startup guy, all right? So if you want to listen to what's going on in startup and, and, and all this guy, what this guy's doing, follow it because it's pretty cool. I did a little background on Ron and hundreds of companies I think he's involved in. And he, he's going to tell us you know, how he got involved in it. Um, really educated guy. Got a PhD from all these Ivy Leagues. I mean, all these, you know, different places. Educated guys. going to be teaching a course this, uh, this fall at Santa Clara for the Broncos. And uh, so we're going to talk to him about that. But I hope we're going to uh, learn a lot from Ron. So, Ron, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, mister. How's it going? It's nice I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So t- tell us a little bit. First of all, um, give, us, give us your background. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up actually uh, on the West Coast here in Oregon, in a little town, actually the capital called Salem, and uh, went to high school there and, and college, and then I decided I want to see the world, and I went back east for school, and then came back to the West Coast. So I've, I've gotten to travel quite a bit. It's been a lot of fun. You grew up in Salem, huh? I was born in the Midwest, though. I mean, well, I was born in Hawaii, but I lived, grew, did elementary school in Ohio, so I'm also Midwestern. Yeah, we've always moved around quite a bit. Wow, and then say, did you go to did you go to college in at Willamette? No, uh, there's a there's a very liberal school called Reed College up there. Uh, I know where I, Reed is. That's important. It is, it is, and it's it's it's, it's quite a bit of fun there too. Um, uh, then you know, swung the other way. Princeton is not uh, not a liberal. Uh, <laughs> it's not a liberal stronghold, uh, but it's kind of like in between. I you know, it's a little conservative, but it's also between. So. Ohio's kind of in between. It's a nice purple state. I like that. That's my favorite place to be is kind of in the middle there. Nice. So yeah. you, you end up getting your, uh, your PhD and what's your specialty as far as your education? Well, I uh, got very interested in chemistry and I went to the chemistry department for my PhD, but uh, I quickly learned that, that like uh, you shouldn't really let your, your formal degrees define you. And I was doing a lot of biochemistry and biology at the time. And uh, everybody's saying biology is going to blow up. Biology is going to blow up, and thank goodness it did. So now I've done all kinds of things. So, how did you end up uh, down in the Berkeley area? Um, you know, it was just I had been in academia. I actually did a couple postdocs. I spent over twelve years in academia, uh, postgraduate, and uh, done a lot of research, and just decided it was just not not going to work for me. It was too slow, and um, so I thought, oh, I want to go back to startups. I've always been fascinated by startups. So I moved back to California because there were some biotech startups, and one of them invited me to join them. Um, and I just sort of dropped everything and drove back here. It was something, it was, it was an amazing experience. Uh, like, I, I always thought I wanted to do startups, and so I just sort of jumped in. 
And that turned out to be a key lesson that I've used over and over again in my life. I just try something new. So you, you jumped in your car, you drove to, uh, you know, San Francisco area and yep. you started in a startup. And so I understand that you, you also started a group that invests in startups. That's right. So I, I actually, I had like a 12, from that startup, I ended up working sort of a regular staff job at a biotech company, a good one for about, for another 10 or 12 years. Mm. And I was getting a little bit bored and I couldn't figure out what to do next. And this opportunity came up and basically a guy I met convinced me to get into startups again. And I just, I kind of just dropped everything and we started this little lab uh, and ended up building the first biotech accelerator uh, for startups. In What's it world. called? It's called Indie Bio. And as downtown San Francisco, I left my, my sort of secure little job and nice salary and dropped everything and went downtown and uh, built a lab for them. And we invested in between 10 to 15 small companies every six months. They'd come in and work with us um, and, uh, and we'd, uh, um, we, we'd sort of watch them for three to four months, try to help them get ready for investment and, and sort of, uh, and, and give that a shot. And it was, it worked out really great. Nobody had ever really thought to, that you could start a biotech company with $200,000 or so. These guys didn't have a lot of cash. They, they were able to stay with us rent free in our lab for a few months. And most of them started getting funding. And uh, now the, the cost and size of biotech company once it gets started has dropped precipitously. And so it's been, that was a real exciting point in my life to sort of experience that. Uh, and, How long did you do Indie Bio for? Uh, did that about four years. <laughs> so you can see, like, once I started sort of hopping, I, I, I developed a fairly refined sense for when to sort of jump off and do something else. And uh, we stayed there about four years, and my business partner and I went and started a startup. I did that for a couple of years, and then my role was not looking uh, like what I needed to be. Science was sort of not expanding there. And so we decided that I, you know, it was okay for me to jump off. So I left that, and now I am working with small companies from all around the world and, um, and maybe doing and helping advising uh, investment and that kind of thing now. So in what ways are you, uh, are you helpful to a company? You know, for, say for example, yeah. what kind of company would call up Ron to say, Hey, listen, Ron, we need some consulting on, I got an, I got a yeah. great idea. How do, how do, how do I make it into a company? Well, this is a great, that's a great question. So what, what we did quickly discovered at IndieBio was that there were a lot of people who had great ideas and some of them were momentous world-changing ideas, uh, but they, they really didn't know what to do first. They kind of needed a safe place to launch from. IndieBio Indie was that kind of place. You could come in, you had the same place, your sort of rent was taken care of, all the miscellaneous details of starting a business was taken care of. Uh, but then how do you get started? You sort of have people like me and the rest of the staff would come in and we talk to you almost every day about what to do next. And that's kind of what I've continued to do. I'm actually getting uh, maybe better at that in time. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to say that like, uh, I have a team at Santander X, which is a global international sort of startup competition. My team got into the finals. Uh, we'd all be meeting in Boston in October if it wasn't for the shutdown, um, you know, to compete for a $200,000 prize. You know, there's a lot of places that will take you if you're ready, but there aren't a lot of people who will hold your hand to get you ready to actually sort of pitch for money and make a lot of sense. 
Um, uh, it, it, it's a process and you can do it on your own, but um, I mean, it's a lot easier and a lot more, a lot lower risk if you have someone to help you, you know, some experience on your side. No, that's great. I, I um, so I'm in this group, um, you know, it's a real small group. It's, it's through Notre Dame and it's this group called Irish Angels. And so mm -hmm. I think the name has changed to Vitalize. Ah, um, interesting. So you're an investor too. That's great. Oh, no, I do. I, and I, I've, you know, I've been involved in a number of them and, and, um, so Vitalize just opened up their office in um, in San Francisco. Um, you know, there's there's we, we have a uh, somebody out there who I definitely want you to to talk to because you know you can introduce her to all these people that have these great companies. Right. Because you know that we I was just talking with somebody um, from Utah. We have the same mindset and that you have. You know, and you know the the whole the mindset of going from idea to you know, to basically, you know, finding a solution to a, a pressure point or a problem. And I, and one of the things that, that, that kind of the mindset for me is, is that there's got to be some sort of demand or need for that rather than just your own passion doing it. Does that, does that make sense to you? It does. It does. And, you know, it's, I mean, the sweet spot is when you have both of those things, right? I think uh, uh, everything, the thing is you give a lot of advice about start startups and you hear a lot of advice. There's something that can go horribly wrong at every point. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> That's something they don't really say. Like you could have yeah. passion, you get you out of bed in the morning, you're, you're fixing something that's broken in the world. All these things are really great to have, but uh, you know, it's also very easy to screw up one of those things and just become totally worthless. So uh, <laughs> it's important to sort of have someone that you trust to talk over those things with. Co-founders are the best people to talk with. If you have a good relationship with someone and they'll be honest with you and they'll say, hey, you know what? That's crap crummy. Like that doesn't make any sense. You're talking nonsense. If you can hear that from someone and they can tell it to you, you've got, you've got something, you've got a place to start from. Uh, then, you know, the level, your standards have to rise and rise and rise. You know, there's a big difference between Jeff Bezos and, you know, your average pitch you see at the university pitch contest. Like, he not only had a great idea, but he was actually capable of executing it. He had the experience and the planning to see what he had to do to sort of make Amazon real. And in, in, in addition to that, I'm sure he got plenty lucky as well. Um, you need all those things to really succeed. And, um, and uh, it, it's good to sort of like look around and see what other people are doing. You know, that's, that's one of the best places to start. You know, I was, I was sitting around having lunch with a, a number of, I don't know, I guess you call them senior citizens. I was like six months ago, and um, they were talking about, uh, they were, I think it was, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was 20 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. There was a guy going door to door at all the businesses in Chicago selling this electronic book called the Kindle mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, see, you know, and see if it would catch fire, et cetera, whatever. And uh, they were talking about Bezos. He was, mm -hmm. he was making his pitches going door to door and you know, uh, I remember that this is all pre-Amazon. You know, for people who are listening, that um, it was basically a book sales place, and you know, um, and how he came up with a grand design to basically sell things at a loss to get the market share, and then eventually it, it takes off. But that discipline of going through those years and years and years of nonprofit, you know, no profit, that's that's quite a, a discipline, isn't it, Ron? 
It is, and you know, there's also just raw talent. Like Bezos had been working for a venture capital firm before he invested in a lot of deep biotechnology. He, you know, he was a pretty strong business person beforehand. And, uh, you know, I think we often dismiss that, like, it's okay to just get started and sort of try things out and, and start, but it's also good to know that you're swimming with some people who are really talented and really talented business people, uh, they're worth learning from. Like, I just heard this great story of Michael Dell, you know, Dell Computer. Uh, it's, it, if you ever a chance to look at his bio, like, he's written, it's been written up by journalists, you know, and he, uh, and podcasts, you know, he, when he was in school, he just got really interested in computers and he decided to start building them. And when, when he got to college, he was so entranced by, oh, actually, no, the first business he was in, he had a commission thing for a local newspaper. And that story blows my mind. Like he just realized that he could get, uh, you know, he would get a commission every time he got some subscribed to the paper. And then he realized that pe when people get married, they kind of want to establish routine and they're looking to build a home. And so they're very likely to subscribe to a newspaper. And so he, what he'd do is he'd go down to the county courthouse and pull the marriage rolls. And he was, this is the 1980s or the right. late 70s. So then he'd just go home, get the phone number, he'd just call everybody and say, hey, how would you like to subscribe to the newspaper? And so by the time he left for college, he had like several friends who he paid flat rate, would go down to the courthouses in various counties and towns and bring him back the bringing back the, the, the marriage rolls. And so he just, he was getting great commissions at that point. And then we got to college, he started making computers. And by the time he was a junior, he had, he had another building that he had to rent out that he had employees putting computers together. He's making sales of hundreds of computers a month. Like that guy, that guy didn't really need to go to B schools. You know what I mean? Like that's just an amazing instinct, you know, for optimizing things and seeing opportunities. And I think those kind of stories, I, to me, that's how I got started. Like just reading the newspaper, looking at the blogs and saying like, why would Google spend a billion dollars for YouTube? Like as soon you re realize that I'm the naive one, right? I, I think that those experiences are really helpful. If you're really interested in just follow things, you can see some of the patterns where you have weaknesses and you can learn. I think that's a really great way to get started. Yeah, I think you're, what you're also highlighting is, you know, um, I represented a, a, a fellow that bought and sold a lot of businesses. And, um, you know, this guy is what, what I would call a fiscal engineer. And, you know, he knew how the science of basically using other people's money and borrowing and hedging. And because, you know, a lot of business, no matter what it is, biotech, all these types of things, it's gotta be economically feasible. You gotta pay the people that work there. You gotta, you know, you gotta create dividends, you know, all these types of things, which idea people have no idea is going on, but the well-rounded business person, if you talk to them, um, you, you understand that they're always thinking about the bottom line and, and, and coming through for investors, which is why you would invest in a startup to begin with. Yeah, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs don't really think about profitability or that and there's also a lot of contests where go where people talk about impact, but they don't talk about economic viability. So that's a really important thing to remember. And if you don't have a business background, it's easy to forget. Um, and I wish people would because it's difficult for me to make introductions to somebody, to an investor, if they're like, we're going to take all your money and we're going to distribute something for free to a lot of people. Is it really a great business plan? I've, I've seen several of those. <laughs> so, uh, 
but you know, you get over this. I think the important thing is just to keep trying and to look for how to evolve. You know, how do you change? How, how do you grow so that you can get to where you really want to go? Um, and so that's what you, people talk about passion, right? Because you kind of have to want to go somewhere particular in order to get there as well. So tell me for, for your indie bio, uh, do, do you have some, some stories that you can, you know, that, that you'll, you'll be teaching at Santa Clara about what worked and ones that, that were ones I, that, that, yeah. Yeah. I got to tell you something. I, I, you probably have been to quite a few, quite a few MBAs in your time. There are, there are several kinds of MBAs and they're all just fine, you know, but I think, uh, <laughs> but you know, I think that there's a lot of different motives that people have when they go and get a business degree. Some people just want to end up somewhere stable. They want something they can understand that they like to do and they just want to sort of do that. And they make super employees and so forth. Uh, but there are some people who are almost scarily ambitious. You know, they're like, I'm not going to just, I'm not going quietly into that night. I'm going to make a splash. I'm going to make a noise. And uh, those people are very exciting to be around. Um, and I think, I think now that the cost of an MBA and graduate school is so high, I think it's good to at least know that when you get into school like that, that you can, that you can try for the brass ring. You can aim high. The worst that's going to happen is you're going to be off target. You end up a little lower down than you thought, you know, but at least uh, if you did that, if you, if you sort of saying, if you're aiming for a stable life and a good career, it's harder to get because those careers are harder and harder to find. Uh, if that's where you want to be, that's fine. But if you end up sort of like aiming high and just ending up there in a stable job, like that's, you know, then at least you know. And I think that that's a good way to live your life. I think it's good to try. So if someone wants to sort of aim high and wants to have that kind of impact, uh, I think that that's a really great thing to do. I, I, all I can say is I, that's what motivated me to sort of move into investing. I mean, I literally, I, I've sort of made my career in my late in my my late career here, just by dropping whatever I'm doing and moving on to something else that I just sort of realize is a better place for me to be, um, and all the entrepreneurs that we funded, we funded 70 teams at IndieBio while I was there. Actually, 80 teams while we were there. They're all constituted people who are just dropping everything and coming in. They can be young, they can be older. All the experience you have makes makes a big uh, makes a big difference. It's a positive. But so for me, the biggest thing was. So the biggest thing I have been involved with is the new technological food startups. This whole idea that you don't need meat to make meat, you don't need animals to make meat, that you don't need to have, that you can make them out of plants, you can make them out of cells. Um, there's a comp that's really kind of changing the world. And as a scientist, when I started looking into what the economic uh, consequences of these things were, the ecological consequences, it kind of changed my life and it's become my my mission too now because uh, the food systems we have it is simply not sustainable if we all want to have a glass of milk if we all want to have a steak if we all want you know if every human being uh if they want to eat right and we're, we're headed to nine billion people on the planet it's just not the way it was back in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s when uh, there were a fraction of this number of people on the planet and everybody sort of wanted to eat well um and we need to do something about it. And technology is the way uh, to make sure the food is secure, safe, and it's healthy, and it's affordable. You know, all those things are actually a real trick. And the food system, like a lot of things that we're doing, uh, a lot of things about our civilization, the food system is very sort of metastable. It's, ready, it's under a lot of stress. 
it's growing super fast and it's massive size is creating a vulnerability. It's not, it's not really safe anymore the way it used to be. And we add another 20% of the population, it will be even worse. So this is an opportunity to go and, and think about the lives of billions of people and how they're eating. Um, I, uh, here's a little B-school anecdote for you. I, uh, you know, Google and uh, uh, Google and Facebook and uh, Pinterest and like all these big social media companies, all of them get their massive profits and value from the advertising sector. Right. The global, you know what the, guess what the global advertising market is? The global advertising spend annually, guess what it is? Trillion? It's about $270 billion. Wow. So you're close, about quarter off. But you know what? Guess what the global food market is? Because everybody eats every day. So it's pretty big, right? So yeah. what do you think? Uh, I'll go a trillion again. It's $12 trillion. That was last year. So, wow. so I mean, and it's really different than advertising uh, because there are millions of, of, of individual companies playing a part in that thing. It's, it's much more fragmented. But, you know, you think about the impact, you know, you know Google and Apple and, and Facebook, they are so much of the world's market. And they're, 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 they're all playing on this $400 billion market or so that they're sort of like taking all the profits from. They're huge companies, but they're in a much smaller market than food. And so, you know, what we're talking about is, when we talk about sort of like technological sort of re rehabilitation of the food system, we're talking about something that's, I don't know, 10 times, 12 times bigger. It's amazing. Well, tell me, tell me some players, you know, you know, you started this thing four years ago. Tell, tell me some players that, that found that niche in that group and are thriving or yeah. moving in that direction or, or right. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you that the, the big three in my life, uh, and really different, really different companies. One of them is Memphis meats. That was, uh, the second so Memphis meats. Is it out of Tennessee? No, they had a founder who was out of Tennessee and his family had actually had done a lot of barbecue and they still okay. barbecue chain. Right. So okay. they decided that that was a friendly name and, and it kind of reflected the founders. Um, that was, uh, that company was founded, uh, and, uh, they got investment, they got investment right away. They actually made a meatball, uh, uh, from, uh, from cells and okay. it was a thousand dollar meatball. <laughs> uh, wow. and, uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I think I'm gonna be able to pull up an image of that here for you. Yeah, do. And, uh, they, with that one meatball, with that one meatball, they were able to, okay, here it is. I'm gonna, um. I'm going to see if I can, uh, okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm going right, to, I'm going to, I'm just going to take over and share the screen there. Oh, I love that. This is yeah, great. So, so show, give me control and I'll, I'll pop it up here. Thrillist has an article with it. Okay. Uh, okay. Am I on? I'll keep talking. Yeah. I don't know if I can do that. Let me see here. Okay. Uh, uh, share so, screen. Share yeah. a screen. Let me see if I can do that. Let's see. Um, hmm. I can't see. do it. Okay, that's okay. Anyway, yeah, tell me about it. So these guys, these guys, a couple of, one of the, 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 the main founder who sort of started everything, his name was Uma Valetti, and he was a professor of cardiology at the University of Minnesota. He was 
the head of the department. He was an MD, PhD, had a big lab in his practice. And uh, he sent a couple graduate students out who were co-founding with him to come and start the company. He came out, but when they got funded, uh, when they got funded uh, by a bunch of venture capitalists, he quit his job. He quit his job. He's, that was a lot of money, a lot of prestige. He dropped sure. everything to come out here. He's from the area. He, he's living back in Palo, uh, down the peninsula now. And uh, uh, he came back to run the company and they have done really well. They've been funded by, you know, when they showed up, a bunch of large food companies had started venture capital funds and they all jumped in. Bill and Melinda Gates are in there, Cargill is in there, uh, Tyson Foods is in there. And um, that was like, that was career making for me because all the largest names in meat in North America were backing this thing. And the CEO of Tyson's came on, uh, got, he got interviewed by Bloomberg. And he said, if we could make an animal, if we could make meat without killing an animal, why wouldn't we? Right. And it's like, it's one thing, what I say in my talks is, it's one thing if they'll actually give money to a company like Memphis Meats and back them. It's another when the CEO goes out and tells everybody he's happy he did it. Like that's a completely different level of, of, of relationship. You know? where, is, where is Memphis Meats now? They are in the East Bay here near Berkeley where I live. Uh, they are doing super well. They just closed the B round. It was way over, it was like $140 million. But they will wow. probably be producing meat for the table soon, right? It's so this and it's all grown in the lab. It's been four years, and that meatball cost three thousand dollars, and now they're ready to serve. They have they have had held many dinners. There's been a big. There's a you'll if you go on the internet, you see a big slice of chicken uh, on some pasta that they made, uh, and uh, they served that to twenty people. And, and this is all formed in a lab, these, these, anim this, these animals. Well, they're cells that are grown separately. I, I think um, we, we like to say is that like, you know, a dairy is like a lab too. So I would say it's like, a, I would say it's just like a food plant. Um, it's just mm -hmm. like, it's, it's, it's cleaner than a meat packing plant. Uh, but all of them try to live up to all of those companies, Cargill, Smithfield, all of these meat packing companies, they all try to live up to the cleanliness of a lab. So if it is a lab, it's the best meat you've ever, it's the cleanest meat you've ever gotten. Wow, so that's that's an, an inter, that's a very interesting startup. And you, that started out in your lab? That's right, we had them in there for three months and uh, it was a thrill. I mean, I got, they actually had, one time they got brought me in this little, it looked like a scab. <laughs> it was like the first piece of pork they ever made. And they gave me a little corner of it, tasted, it tasted meaty. And I thought, wow, we really are gonna make this. It's amazing. Are you an investor? Uh, well, uh, the IndieBio team was investors. We would actually invest money in oh. the companies in exchange for stock for them to work in the lab. Just like oh, you okay. said, we need to make money in order to be sustainable. Sure. That's how we did that. So let me turn my well, good for you, man. That's awesome. Sorry, yeah, and so, um, so apologies, like my phone, I should turn it off. Um, so another example is Clara Foods. That was the first food company. We, had, we, we invest in a lot of different biotech, and there's a lot of great ideas about there to improve healthcare, create cosmetics, materials for fashion. We did all kinds of things as well as devices and more conventional biotech, uh, even web services uh, and, and telemedicine and this kind of stuff. But the food came to dominate our, our public image because it was such a big project and because it really resonated uh, with investors and with what people really wanted. 
There's mm -hmm. a general feeling that food is not as safe as it used to be. People sure. long for the old days, but you know, if you have really like homegrown sort of like chicken and eggs and all this kind of, and, and, and vegetables from the backyard, you can do that, but it, you got to pay for it. Like it's not super cheap to grow vegetables in a tiny little patch and just like eat them fresh. Right. Like, you know, God bless if you can do it. But you know, when you're talking about feeding 8 billion people, it's a, it's a lot more important to sort of have something that scales well. And, uh, and so Clara Foods was the first company we invested in. Now that was different. That was a bunch of, a couple of very idealistic guys, uh, David and Art, who had met at, a, at basically an animal cruelty sort of like uh, a meeting where they had talking, how can we get animals out of the system? And they decided to create eggs. They wanted to make eggs not from animals. And so they had realized, they, they realized that egg whites constitute almost entirely of protein. They're almost all protein in water. And they said, what if we can get the protein from something else like yeast and make an egg white from that? And so they actually looked at the genes from the chicken and got the, got the proteins from the chicken, the, the, that same ones in the egg white. And they showed that by changing the, getting some of these proteins, not all of them, they could take the ones that constitute most of egg white and they can make an egg white. They can make meringues, they can make pasta. They can make all of these many, many products that eggs actually constitute, uh, you know, make, make a contribution to. They could replace any egg anywhere. And it was amazing to spend uh, three and a half months with them in the lab and just see these things come out. They had meringues, they were giving them out. And they showed that this food was really the same. It was exactly the same. And they worked, worked through the economics and they could see that it actually could work. That was a thrilling time. That was the first company. Memphis Meats was in the second batch, you know? And uh, so all of these companies now coming out in many, many combinations, all this great diversity. There's so many ideas out there now. Um, there's probably, I would say there's probably well over 150 food tech startups and plant-based food startups uh, in the world now. There's all these little companies. They don't even have to come to San Francisco anymore. They're everywhere. They're doing everything. Uh, the, I guess the last story I'll tell is one of my new uh, companies I'm working with. They're in Singapore. They're called Turtle Tree Labs. And that's like a whole new wave of technology where uh, scientists have learned to take cells and make different organs from just cells. So you can grow a kidney or a little tiny heart or brain cells in a little test tube and it'll be like a microscopic brain. And what they decided to do is they decided to grow mammary tissue in a, in a bioreactor and they discovered they can get milk out of it. So wow. you, can just, you can just hook up a little hose to a bioreactor and milk just comes straight out. It's wow. bloody amazing. And uh, Singapore is turning into a new hub where all kinds of things are happening. And the government is just doing an amazing job sort of keeping that company in front of everybody and, and way out in front. It's, a, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing place now. So there's all kinds of political and economic incentives uh, that are sort of being offered to these companies. And the movement's really just growing. And it's, it kind of happened by accident. You know, we, we tried lots of different experiments, but food is just the kind of thing, and biotech is kind of scary to, to start investing in biotech where you don't really have any experience. It, it's very intimidating. Healthcare is very regulated. Drugs are completely, they're this minefield of value where you can just get, you can just like, the floor can just blow up under you at any given time. But food is just something that people feel that they understand and it turned out to be a really useful place to invest in. 
you know, I've got about a dozen firms that I can talk to who are very interested in what's going on uh, with food and what, what's happening now. What we really need are new ideas. And, uh, and, uh, and it's just like the sky's the limit right now if you really can have an impact on food. Tell me about your, your, you're moving to, to back to academia and you're gonna be teaching a course. Um, so tell me, tell me about that. Is that, that must be pretty exciting to teach. It's, it's a business course and a, a course involving biology and chemistry, right? Yeah, it's exciting to go back uh, to academia. I've been away for quite a while. Um, it's just a single class. I've been, help, I've been on the advisory board for a business school down at Santa Clara University uh, for a couple of years. And uh, they said, well, we, we need someone to teach the food innovation class. So uh, I was excited that they thought of me and we went back and uh, I went back and talked to the, the faculty there and the staff and we've, uh, we're gonna teach a class, I'm gonna teach one class this winter, maybe just one class a year, uh, but I'm really excited to sort of handle this the way I have everything else. Like it's a, you know, uh, we're right in the middle of Silicon Valley and what we wanna do is really uh, reflect the subject. For me, the subject, of why food is food, of what food innovation is, the soul of food innovation is a startup culture merging with food technology and food markets, right? And so the class is going to be kind of a hybrid of um, of a hybrid of of sort of startup ethos and the maker culture and uh, the startup ethos, along with the well understood sort of like parts of food. Who buys food? Why do they buy food? What kind of food do people want? All those things just that are like are all like uh, they're all sort of mixed in the class naturally, just like just like a little bit of uh, an accelerator session. Just the kind of thing I do with startups. We want it to be very active, very very sort of hands on, and really learning how to actually operate in the field. So I'm no, really excited. It should be a business school business class like none other really. Should be so, uh, it's, it's one of the first ones in the country, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's maybe three of them now. <laughs> Good for so, you. Yeah, excited about that. So, Ron, you know, one of the things that, you know, in my podcast I like to, to talk about is, you know, people's, like, you know, uh, defining moments in their life that made them kind of change or grow. Maybe you could tell us some of those in your life. Yeah. You know, what I... I actually used to do alumni interviews. I don't do them anymore, but I, when I did them, I kind of got, I was aware that the tuitions were really increasing. They were going up so fast. And I thought, how, how can you be, how can you be middle class in this country and imagine coming out with a four-year degree and probably having spent like $60,000 for your tuition? How, how, what's that like, you know? And I think, um, I think, um, for me, I'm lucky because I ended up being lucky because I've always been sort of dissatisfied with where I was and I'm kind of an ambitious person, but I was always thinking that I could, uh, I could just sort of like do the next step and eventually I'd be ready and then I would sort of start going where I wanted to go. And I guess my advice for, you know, people starting off is, well, you know, you may have to sort of sit things out and sort of like learn some things. And there's no, re no nothing wrong with that, but you should always give yourself permission to try something new and, and to follow your inclinations. Because if you're in your 20s and you sort of put off graduate school for a couple of years or take a break from college for a year and you just go and start a little business or you just see something new, uh, get some experience, 
you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I think um, uh, when you're in school, you're probably too young to have a life, a life ambition, but there's nothing wrong with putting that in pause and trying to feel one out for a little while. You know, I think whatever you think, if you really understand yourself and you really go for it, uh, you should never really have any regrets about that. You know, to me, that's what, that's why, you know, by the time I had, uh, you know, gotten tired of sitting at my desk at my job, uh, I was ready now. I can barely sit still for more than a few months. <laughs> yeah, you know, so Ryan, you know, you know, the, the thing is, you seems like you have such an interesting life, you know, um, all these different companies, you've been in academia, you've been in business, you're going, you're going back to teach kids. It's exciting. Were there any individuals in your life that, you know, kind of served as role models for you that they kind of, gave you the confidence to, to do this type of thing? Or, you know, can you point to, you know, I know there's a lot of people in our lives, you know, obviously, you know, my parents and, and other coaches I've had through the years and business people, but are there, how about you? Are there folks that, uh, that kind of helped you sometimes? I mean, I think, first of all, I, I, I want to say you shouldn't undervalue your teachers. I really look back at my teachers, grade school through junior high and high school. I look at them all and I learned a lot from them more than I thought it was at the time. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I go back and say like, you know, I really, every time I took a class and I really paid attention all the way through college, I use it all the time. You know, I took a speech, I was on the speech team. The speech teacher, uh, Ms. Carroll, she came and she, she sort of nabbed me and she said like, you know what, would you like to be on the speech team? And I'm like, yeah, I'll give it a try. I really don't know if I want to, you know, and I, I gave speeches. And you know, I don't, to be honest, I never was very good at it back then. But I give public speeches all the time now, sometimes many four or five times a month. And uh, boy, was that useful, right? I think if you really use what you're given, you'll find that no matter how crummy it looks <laughs> to you sometimes, like it's plenty, you know, there's actually a lot there. Um, as far as individual, I gotta say, you know what? I'm gonna say my dad, but I'm gonna, it's, it's an unusual story. Because my father, uh, my father was very bright and he academically was very successful. He graduated with really good grades from Oregon State. And he and my mom moved out to Boston and he was in Harvard Business School. And that was in the, that was in the 60s. So there's plenty of time to make a lot of money. But I think that the pressure was not very good for him. And uh, ambitious, ambitious people who take ambitions from the other people, not from themselves. Sure. It's just a lot of pressure and he never made it. He, in fact, he, he had a mental illness. He has schizophrenia and he actually ended up sort of wandering off and just sort of bouncing around the world, never had a job after a while. And, um, I, you know, it's not the typical kind of influence you think of, but, you know, just watching my own father, I learned a lot of things. I learned that the world's a scary place, that failure can happen. And you'd think that that would have beat you down, but I, you know, it made me a little more careful, but it did not dim my ambitions. In some ways, I felt that I also maybe needed to succeed in a way uh, to sort of validate him. Maybe there's a little bit of that in there. I don't even, I'm not even sure I know exactly what that is, you know? But I mean, that was very influential to me. And so all those, even some of those tragic and, and adverse experiences, you know, if they're very intense, you can learn a lot. Uh, there's nothing, there's really nothing that you can't sort of get an advantage from if you learn to see it the right way. And uh, 
and the right door is open. You know, I, I never dismiss the power of luck. You know, um, that moment when you're speaking about your father, um, you know, when I, when I, when I speak with, with people, um, and get to know them, you know, and when you're teaching your class, you know, that you're going to be teaching at, um, Santa Clara, I think, you know, at the beginning of the class, when you share that kind of vulnerability about, you know, that things aren't perfect in the world mm -hmm. and that, you know, um, you know, you're humble with people and you're open with them. I think that invites a, a better relationship, you know, that, that, that you, that there's a certain level of trust. And, you know, the thing is you, as long as you know yourself and know who you are and, and, and understand that that's a really great thing to, to connect with. I think an audience um, that you're, you're really true and you, you, you want to help them succeed and you'll tell them, you know, that type of, of story. And, you know, how did you anchor yourself when your father, you know, started showing signs of, you know, this type of illness? That's interesting. Well, first of all, thanks. I learned something from you today. Um, I think that uh, it was kind of a complicated story. I mean, I think he started showing, uh, he actually left the family once in fifth grade. So he was very unstable up to that point. And, uh, very unpredictable. So it was really, you know, he got to, they got to the point where we were kind of happy to see him go. Nobody wants to see their father go anywhere, but sure. at some point, even we would realize that like, it's probably better for all of us mm -hmm. if he sort of goes off and does his own thing. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people, I, I mean, I think I, that kind of put a chip on my shoulder in a way. It's really yeah, interesting because yeah. like talking to you, in no judgment here, but like when I got to Princeton, I was teaching undergraduates. I was very curious as to who they were, uh, just like you are with your podcast here. And I discovered overwhelmingly, they came from stable families. Right. Overwhelmingly, they were kind of doing what their parents did. Like a lot of the, a lot of the kids from public school, they were teachers, uh, teachers, kids. And a lot of them were from the private school. They're from very successful lawyers and doctors and, and sometimes professors. And uh, they were all kind of doing this. And like, I think, because I, I think the great thing is like, I really had nothing to inherit from my father. Like I didn't really want to follow in his footsteps in any way. <laughs> but that gave me a tremendous amount of freedom to sort of like find my own way and not have any second guesses about it because I really didn't have an alternative. Uh, but I, it's harder, you know? And I, so I think if anybody out there is, listening, this might make sense to them that like, you really can come from anywhere. And no matter yeah. how hard things have been, um, you know, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's going to be easy at all, but it, it can be very hard, but there's probably a narrow passage somewhere to get to where you want to go, but you have to know what you want first. And you don't have to commit to it. You just say, right now, I want this. And you go through that, you, you sort of, Try to find your way there. And then you might have a different destination in mind after some of those experiences. But I think you got to keep moving, you know, and I think that that can be very hard um, if you sort of let the negativity get through. I always try to be very positive and I try to be positive about people. And that's kind of, <laughs> that's why I like working with the teams. Uh, they often don't listen to me. Uh, that's typical. Uh, every yeah. advisor I know has that same sort of issue, uh, but they also need their independence. And that's what gives us a great pleasure. They're dealing with independent people who have their own mission, 
their own way. Um, I like sharing that with them. So have you written a book yet? Uh, you know, I might after the class, but I'm going to start a TikTok up. <laughs> and so yeah. my TikTok. Yeah, you know, I like it because what you just hit on was the most interesting part of the interview. Hmm. You know, your, the struggle you had from the beginning and finding that narrow way. To me, and that your mother must have been an amazing person and helping you. Yeah. Yeah, and helping you navigate through that. I mean, so, so that to me is the most interesting part is, is so listen, all of us are gonna have struggles. I mean, so I'm I'm in suburban Chicago, okay? Mm -hmm. And we are in the most segregated city in the country. We are the most probably the most violent parts of the city. You, you read about it in the news, I'm sure. So there, there are um, a few social issues, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have all sorts of issues. And so I think the message needs to get out, um, you know, because it's not fair. It's not, it's not fair that, you know, like for example, my parents, my dad was a social worker. My mom stayed at home. I think that, that he maxed out at 18 grand a year. We had no money, but mm. we had, you know, my mom had, you know, they had 10 kids. And but they were tethered to uh, a community yeah. like a parish, right. uh, you know, and we were we were tethered to this whole group of people that helped each other out throughout the whole thing. And so my parents stayed together for, you know, 50 plus years, etc. And so that is uh, a type of thing that stability that you're talking about for all those people that you were teaching at those Ivy League schools. That is the richness that people have is that mm -hmm. incubator. And so for people that can navigate that when they don't have that, that is the, the roadmap that, that we all have to give each other just to say, listen, there's, there, you know, if you don't have that, there's still a way for you to make it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, that's interesting bio you've got there too. Uh, what I find is everybody has a very completely different story. You can find elements that are the same. Uh, so you can't really judge. Like I can't, yeah. I used to have a, have a bias, you know, to be honest that like, little chip on my shoulder that people from stable families are boring or something. It's not <laughs> true, you know what I mean? Like, but it's just, this is where I was coming from. You know, I had something to prove to myself. Uh, but I think, um, I think it, working with different kinds of people, you also find there's so many different ways, you know? Uh, some people, some people have every opportunity, they make nothing out of it. Some people have every opportunity and they make even more out of it. You know, I just, uh, that's a fascinating lesson. And I think everybody needs to go out and get it. You know, if you know more people, right? You've interviewed like what seventy or eighty people near here yeah. on the podcast. Like, yeah. a lot of great stories. No, it's it, you know, to me, the, the the most fascinating story. So, everybody I interview, a lot of them are uber successful. Okay, mm -hmm. but there's a backstory on everybody, including me. I you know, I get a backstory on me that you know, listen, if there was if there was social media when I was a kid, there's no way I could have become a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, Joe, you know, Shannon, it, Joe Shannon's big, big YouTube channel. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, there's, I, no, I, I just, you know, and it's funny cause you know, um, you know, some of the stuff that, uh, you know, for example, you know, Mark Wahlberg, you know, the guy that's the famous actor, oh, yeah, he had a real that. troubled youth, you know what I mean? Just awful. I mean, I, I violent, horrible, etc. And, um, you know, I don't think he ever went he may not even graduate high school. He didn't go to college. And people were saying, hey, man, it's great. You did all these things that you, you know, you, you, you made it and you didn't go to college, et cetera. He said, he, he looks deadpan and he says, if I had to go to college, I'd be, the, I'd be running networks rather than being an actor. 
You know what I mean? And so that's the kind of approach is that, you know, people downplay education. And I, you know, education is huge. I mean, I bet you're just like super excited to teach your class and to kind of get these kids super charged or not kids, but, you know, professionals yeah. to, to, to be an active participant in life and to do a lot, you know, to be a Renaissance person like you're doing. I mean, being a Renaissance person is so much fun, you know, being, being active physically, you know, thinking about the, the globe, how we're going to feed the globe, how we're going to be a good family person, all these things. That's, those are Renaissance issues. They are. They are. And I think up to now, you can sort of rely on just looking at your parents and your community and uh, people you know, and just sort of like using that as a way to sort of move forward. Uh, but now uh, there's just so many things changing. I think we all need to cast a wider net and to look for more influences and new ideas and uh, and uh, try something new. I think one of the crazy things about business, speaking of the classes, I just don't think you can get an MBA, go off to work for General Electric, stay there your entire life, and just sort of call yourself satisfied. I, I you know, I just I, there's yeah. going to be layoffs, there's going to be downsides, there's going to be rearrangements, there's going to be acquisitions, and there's going to be spinoffs. And I just think that. I think one of my big pieces that I've learned in the last few years is that throughout human history, all like 500,000 years or 200,000 years of our, of our existence, only the past 70 years has there been a stable job for life anywhere in human history. Before that, we were all just entrepreneurs. You know, you get, a, you get your law degree, you hang the shingle out, and you go out to parties and you meet people and you try to get clients. And if the client's not coming, then you don't eat. And or you, you, know, you, get some, you get some vegetables from the garden, you go to the marketplace, you sit there with the vegetables and you sell them. Like if nobody buys, oh, you know, trouble, right? So everybody's been an entrepreneur and we've all been struggling you know, for our livelihood. All that time, it's just except for the past three, three generations or so. And what's happened now is it's swinging back, I think. I think everybody should be a little bit more open to sort of understanding that there's a lot of potential out there, but there's also, uh, there's also the need for you to sort of keep up with things and, and, and watch out for yourself. And I, that's the kind of class I want. I think the MBA has been too stable, a career choice recently. Uh, and uh, it no longer is quite as sweet as it used to be. And just like all degrees and uh, people sort of need to sort of like have those eyes on you know, try to understand their opportunity, look at that landscape for themselves. So, uh, you know, I want people to build their own brands and, manage their own careers and be control of themselves. I think it's a, you know, I'm, that's, that's what I see the next generation of MBAs doing. And I'm excited to start experimenting with that. That's, well, that's great, Ron. Well, listen, any final thoughts on, on, on where you think uh, the economy is going, you know, our, our national economy is going in the next five years? I, you know, I, you know, I, I hate to say this, but have you, have you, have you uh, talked to anybody about Piketty's Capital yet on the podcast? You take a look at what? Piketty's Capital. No. There's a book, it's a book called Capital. And, and so this, this economist sort of went through, this, is, this, this book is fairly, you know, it's like 10 years old now. And he basically looked at a whole bunch of economic data and he sort of, he saw this divide between rich and poor because when people have capital and they mass in the pool, the first thing to do is like, I don't want to lose this. I'm going to keep it. And so they secure it in various ways, which is, there's a lot of people who will sell that service for security. People pay for it it's a very well organized, right? And so if the large pool of capital uh, from profits and so forth never gets smaller, but people work hard to make it larger, 
this is what's creating this gap of, of wealthy and, non, uh, and less wealthy people. There's, the rich and poor divide is only going to get more. And so I think, I think we're going to have to, that's another reason I'm really excited about helping people become entrepreneurs because it's an opportunity to sort of have control of your own destiny. And if things aren't going the way you want, then you can work harder or you can work smarter and you can sort of lift up your opportunities. And I think it's, it's indispensable. The idea that a college degree or any degree will make you financially secure because your service is so valuable. There are so many colleges and universities push, pushing out these degrees now. I just, I, you know, I, I, it's kind of one of the big things I'm really excited about in life is to try to give people the opportunity to maintain their economic mobility. And, uh, you know, the message, unfortunately, is that nobody's going to hand that to you anymore. In the 60s and the 50s and the 70s, people would hand you these jobs. Right. You'd be kind of set. You could retire and you'd go live in Florida and everything's fine. But Florida's pretty full now. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, Ron, yeah, I get you. I totally get it. I, you, know, the, yeah. you know, the one of the things that, that I think is kind of a barometer is, is that any place that you work, they got to need you more than you need them. And that's not, that's not true anymore. I mean, you, you see the young graduates coming out of law school now. Yeah. Scary. 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 I live in, I, I, my, in my hometown here, Bolt Law School is a mile away. Yeah. And they are just barely getting jobs. That is like, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's a top I five agree. school. Top five in the country. No, and, I know. You, and you, you know, the thing is, I, I do think what, you know, um, Maybe the book that we should write is everybody. Everybody needs a side gig. Everybody, because I, I, I think you need to have side gigs, and um, that's a good so, one. Yeah, no, no, I, I really, I, I definitely think that you know every, you know, it used to be that you had a family garden and that you grow some of your food there, etc. I think economically, as a professional, you have to have a side garden, which is a different, you know, economic stream. That if something isn't going well in your own profession, you got that to fall back on. Because, and that's got to be taught to people. And, and because, you know, listen, I was an athlete for, I don't know, 20 years. I, I was a runner and um, I, had a, I had some great coaches, you know, mm -hmm. and they taught me that you use about 5% of your potential and you can get more and more out if you believe that, but also you have to be trained to think that with habits, et cetera. I think the same thing economically is that, we need to have a revitalization of the country in that what you're talking about is every individual has to come up with their own idea that they're going to create their own economy. They're going to create it rather than have somebody hand it to them because it's not happening. That's it right. is not happening. The main thing is the main thing about the side gig. That's really, that's a really great way to put it. And the amazing thing about the side gig is it's something you completely own, right? It's yours. And uh, I think that that's a good experience. Then, you know, I mean, until you have that, right. The great thing about law, a law firm is that it is a business and you, the, the lawyers have to, the, the partners have to run it. So they've got to be, they got to be aware of how many the office supplies are coming in yep. and, you know, what kind of shipping we're using and what kind of uh, like messenger services we use and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, you kind of know the nuts and bolts, you know exactly what you're doing, you know, I mean, you know, everything that's happening, but a lot of people, when I was an employee, it took me years to understand that I couldn't rely on other people to do anything for me at work. If I wanted to do well, I took care of everything. Right. I started entrepreneurialism in the office. 
but then I grew my own business, you know, and here I am. So. I like it. Well, Ron, I want to thank you so much. I, I have, I've heard a lot in this interview. I, I didn't really understand the power of this, you know, bio uh, takeover that's happening here. It's a really important deal. And, you know, thank you so much for spending a lot of time helping out those, those companies. I mean, who knows what could happen if all those different companies you started, 80, 100 companies. You never know, right? Well, I hope everybody's already eaten healthier in Chicago. The land, land of the heart attack. <laughs> we like, we like <laughs> well, we're, we're trying to get better at that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, everybody does, and I think we want to offer. You know, like go out to the plant cafe and you know have some have some all you know not, no meat meals, have a meatless Monday, and you know I think uh, I think it's something everybody. The reason it's doing well is because people want to do better, and they want to be healthier for what they eat. Yeah. Do not support that. You know, it's, 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 it's good for everybody. So I hope everybody enjoys that. Well, we're going to wait. I can't wait to read the book. Um, and then uh, if you need an agent, just call me up and we'll right. help you out with it. And Ron, hey, Ron, have there. a great fall and, and winter teaching that course and inspire the next generation, will you? Thanks, Joe. Thanks. Great to meet you. And thanks for the time. Oh, it's wonderful. We'll, we'll catch up with you later. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312-578-9501. Have a terrific day.